Commentary since late 20th century. Until the late 20th century, there was little scholarly commentary of the Second Amendment. In the latter half of the 20th century, there was considerable debate over whether the Second Amendment protected an individual right or a collective right. The debate centered on whether the prefatory clause, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, declared the amendment's only purpose or merely announced a purpose to introduce the operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Scholars advanced three competing theoretical models for how the prefatory clause should be interpreted. The first, known as the state's rights or collective right model, held that the Second Amendment does not apply to individuals, rather, it recognizes the right of each state to arm its militia. Under this approach, citizens have no right to keep or bear arms, but the states have a collective right to have the National Guard. Advocates of collective rights models argued that the Second Amendment was written to prevent the federal government from disarming state militias, rather than to secure an individual right to possess firearms. Prior to 2001, every circuit court decision that interpreted the Second Amendment endorsed the collective right model. However, beginning with the Fifth Circuit's opinion United States v. Emerson in 2001, some circuit courts recognized that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms. The second, known as the sophisticated collective right model, held that the Second Amendment recognizes some limited individual right. However, this individual right could be exercised only by actively participating members of a functioning, organized state militia. Some scholars have argued that the sophisticated collective rights model is, in fact, the functional equivalent of the collective rights model. Other commentators have observed that prior to Emerson, five circuit courts specifically endorsed the sophisticated collective right model. The third, known as the standard model, held that the Second Amendment recognized the personal right of individuals to keep and bear arms. Supporters of this model argued that although the first clause may describe a general purpose for the amendment, the second clause is controlling and therefore the amendment confers an individual right of the people to keep and bear arms. Additionally, scholars who favored this model argued the absence of founding-era militias mentioned in the amendment's preamble does not render it a dead letter because the preamble is a philosophical declaration safeguarding militias and is but one of multiple civic purposes for which the amendment was enacted. Under both of the collective right models, the opening phrase was considered essential as a precondition for the main clause. These interpretations held that this was a grammar structure that was common during that era and that this grammar dictated that the Second Amendment protected a collective right to firearms to the extent necessary for militia duty. However, under the standard model, the opening phrase was believed to be prefatory or amplifying to the operative clause. The opening phrase was meant as a non-exclusive example, one of many reasons for the amendment. This interpretation is consistent with the position that the Second Amendment protects a modified individual right. The question of a collective right versus an individual right was progressively resolved in favor of the individual rights model, beginning with the Fifth Circuit ruling in United States v. Emerson, 2001, along with the Supreme Court's rulings in District of Columbia v. Heller, 2008, and McDonald v. Chicago, 2010. In Heller, the Supreme Court resolved any remaining circuit splits by ruling that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. Although the Second Amendment is the only constitutional amendment with a prefatory clause, such linguistic constructions were widely used elsewhere in the late 18th century. Warren E. Berger, a conservative Republican appointed Chief Justice of the United States by President Richard Nixon, wrote in 1990 following his retirement. The Constitution of the United States, in its Second Amendment, guarantees a right of the people to keep and bear arms. However, the meaning of this clause cannot be understood except by looking to the purpose, the setting and the objectives of the draftsmen, people of that day were apprehensive about the new monster national government presented to them, and this helps explain the language and purpose of the Second Amendment, 
we see that the need for a state militia was the predicate of the right guaranteed, in short, it was declared necessary in order to have a state military force to protect the security of the state. And in 1991 Berger stated, If I were writing the Bill of Rights now, there wouldn't be any such thing as the Second Amendment, that a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of the state, the people's rights to bear arms. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud dash on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. In a 1992 opinion piece, six former American attorneys general wrote. For more than 200 years, the federal courts have unanimously determined that the Second Amendment concerns only the arming of the people in service to an organized state militia, it does not guarantee immediate access to guns for private purposes. The nation can no longer afford to let the gun lobby's distortion of the Constitution cripple every reasonable attempt to implement an effective national policy toward guns and crime. Research by Robert Spitzer found that every law journal article discussing the Second Amendment through 1959 reflected the Second Amendment affects citizens only in connection with citizen service in a government-organized and regulated militia. Only beginning in 1960 did law journal articles begin to advocate an individualist view of gun ownership rights. The opposite of this individualist view of gun ownership rights is the collective right theory, according to which the amendment protects a collective right of states to maintain militias or an individual right to keep and bear arms in connection with service in a militia. For this view see for example the quote of Justice John Paul Stevens in the meaning of well-regulated militia section below. In his book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution, Justice John Paul Stevens for example submits the following revised Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms when serving in the militia shall not be infringed. Meaning of well-regulated militia. An early use of the phrase well-regulated militia may be found in Andrew Fletcher's 1698 A Discourse of Government with Relation to Militias, as well as the phrase ordinary and ill-regulated militia. Fletcher meant regular in the sense of regular military, and advocated the universal conscription and regular training of men of fighting age. Jefferson thought well of Fletcher, commenting that the political principles of that patriot were worthy the purest periods of the British Constitution. They are those which were in vigor. The term regulated means disciplined or trained. In Heller, the U.S. Supreme Court stated that the adjective well-regulated implies nothing more than the imposition of proper discipline and training. In the year prior to the drafting of the Second Amendment, in Federalist No. 29 Alexander Hamilton wrote the following about organizing, disciplining, arming, and training of the militia as specified in the enumerated powers. If a well-regulated militia be the most natural defense of a free country, it ought certainly to be under the regulation and at the disposal of that body which is constituted the guardian of the national security, confiding the regulation of the militia to the direction of the national authority, reserving to the states, the authority of training the militia, a tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day, or even a week, that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of the yeomanry, and of the other classes of the citizens, to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercises and evolutions, as often as might be necessary to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia, would be a real grievance to the people, and a serious public inconvenience and loss, little more can reasonably be aimed at, with respect to the people at large, than to have them properly armed and equipped, and in order to see that this be not neglected, it will be necessary to assemble them once or twice in the course of a year. Justice Scalia, writing for the court in Heller, in Nunn v. State, 1846, the Georgia Supreme Court construed the Second Amendment as protecting the natural right of self-defense and therefore struck down a ban on carrying pistols openly. 
Its opinion perfectly captured the way in which the operative clause of the Second Amendment furthers the purpose announced in the prefatory clause, in continuity with the English right. Nor is the right involved in this discussion less comprehensive or valuable, the right of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. The right of the whole people, old and young, men, women and boys, and not militia only, to keep and bear arms of every description, not such merely as are used by the militia, shall not be infringed, curtailed, or broken in upon, in the smallest degree, and all this for the important end to be attained, the rearing up and qualifying a well-regulated militia, so vitally necessary to the security of a free state. Our opinion is, that any law, state or federal, is repugnant to the Constitution, and void, which contravenes this right, originally belonging to our forefathers, trampled underfoot by Charles I and his two wicked sons and successors, re-established by the Revolution of 1688, conveyed to this land of liberty by the colonists, and finally incorporated conspicuously in our own Magna Carta. And Lexington, Concord, Camden, River Raisin, Sandusky, and the Laurel Crown Field of New Orleans, plead eloquently for this interpretation. And the acquisition of Texas may be considered the full fruits of this great constitutional right. Justice Stevens in dissent. When each word in the text is given full effect, the amendment is most naturally read to secure to the people a right to use and possess arms in conjunction with service in a well-regulated militia. So far as appears, no more than that was contemplated by its drafters or is encompassed within its terms. Even if the meaning of the text were genuinely susceptible to more than one interpretation, the burden would remain on those advocating a departure from the purpose identified in the preamble and from settled law to come forward with persuasive new arguments or evidence. The textual analysis offered by respondent and embraced by the court falls far short of sustaining that heavy burden. And the court's emphatic reliance on the claim that the Second Amendment, codified a pre-existing right, anti, at 19, is of course beside the point because the right to keep and bear arms for service in a state militia was also a pre-existing right. Meaning of the right of the people. Justice Antonin Scalia, writing for the majority in Heller, stated, Nowhere else in the Constitution does a right attributed to the people refer to anything other than an individual right. What is more, in all six other provisions of the Constitution that mention the people, the term unambiguously refers to all members of the political community, not an unspecified subset. This contrasts markedly with the phrase the militia in the prefatory clause. As we will describe below, the militia in colonial America consisted of a subset of the people, those who were male, able-bodied, and within a certain age range. Reading the Second Amendment as protecting only the right to keep and bear arms in an organized militia therefore fits poorly with the operative clause's description of the holder of that right as the people. Scalia further specifies who holds this right. Surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms in defense of hearth and home. An earlier case, United States v. Verdugo Orquidez, 1990, dealt with non-resident aliens and the Fourth Amendment, but led to a discussion of who are the people and referred to elsewhere in the Constitution. The Second Amendment protects the right of the people to keep and bear arms, and the Ninth and Tenth Amendments provide that certain rights and powers are retained by and reserved to the people. While this textual exegesis is by no means conclusive, it suggests that the people protected by the Fourth Amendment, and by the First and Second Amendments, and to whom rights and powers are reserved in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, refers to a class of persons who are part of a national community or who have otherwise developed sufficient connection with this country to be considered part of that community. According to the majority in Heller, there were several different reasons for this amendment, and protecting militias was only one of them. If protecting militias had been the only reason then the amendment could have instead referred to the right of the militia to keep and bear arms instead of the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Meaning of keep and bear arms. 
In Heller the majority rejected the view that the term to bear arms implies only the military use of arms. Before addressing the verbs keep and bear, we interpret their object, arms. The term was applied, then as now, to weapons that were not specifically designed for military use and were not employed in a military capacity. Thus, the most natural reading of keep arms in the Second Amendment is to have weapons. At the time of the founding, as now, to bear meant to carry. In numerous instances, bear arms was unambiguously used to refer to the carrying of weapons outside of an organized militia. Nine state constitutional provisions written in the 18th century or the first two decades of the 19th, which enshrined a right of citizens bear arms in defense of themselves and the state again, in the most analogous linguistic context, that bear arms was not limited to the carrying of arms in a militia. The phrase bear arms also had at the time of the founding an idiomatic meaning that was significantly different from its natural meaning, to serve as a soldier, do military service, fight or to wage war. But it unequivocally bore that idiomatic meaning only when followed by the preposition against. Every example given by petitioners amici for the idiomatic meaning of bear arms from the founding period either includes the preposition against or is not clearly idiomatic. In any event, the meaning of bear arms that petitioners and Justice Stevens propose is not even the, sometimes, idiomatic meaning. Rather, they manufacture a hybrid definition, whereby bear arms connotes the actual carrying of arms, and therefore is not really an idiom, but only in the service of an organized militia. No dictionary has ever adopted that definition, and we have been apprised of no source that indicates that it carried that meaning at the time of the founding. Worse still, the phrase keep and bear arms would be incoherent. The word arms would have two different meanings at once, weapons, as the object of keep, and, as the object of bear, one half of an idiom. It would be rather like saying he filled and kicked the bucket to mean he filled the bucket and died. In a dissent, joined by Justices Souter, Ginsburg, and Breyer, Justice Stevens said. The amendment's text does justify a different limitation, the right to keep and bear arms protects only a right to possess and use firearms in connection with service in a state-organized militia. Had the framers wished to expand the meaning of the phrase bear arms to encompass civilian possession and use, they could have done so by the addition of phrases such as for the defense of themselves. A May 2018 analysis by Dennis Barron contradicted the majority opinion. A search of Brigham Young University's new online corpus of founding-era American English, with more than 95,000 texts and 138 million words, yields 281 instances of the phrase bear arms. BYU's corpus of early modern English, with 40,000 texts and close to 1.3 billion words, shows 1,572 instances of the phrase. Subtracting about 350 duplicate matches, that leaves about 1,500 separate occurrences of bear arms in the 17th and 18th centuries, and only a handful don't refer to war, soldiering or organized, armed action. These databases confirm that the natural meaning of bear arms in the framers' day was military. A paper from 2008 found that before 1820, the use of the phrase bear arms was commonly used in a civilian context, such as hunting and personal self-defense, in both American and British law. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.